Here we go. Together. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord. Some other good singers here. Lord, thank you for tonight. Thank you, Father, for engaging us, not just our hearts, but our minds, to think about things. And Lord, I, there, I'm sure that there are questions here that will be answered tonight, and maybe somebody here tonight struggling, but a lot of the people that are struggling about these things aren't here tonight, and, and we might have to repeat this information and, and study this more and learn this information so we can help other people to believe. Lord, would you just fill this place and uh, help us to, to engage? with history. We thank you for it. We commit this night to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Before you sit down, say hi to somebody. Shake somebody's hand. then if we could all if we could all have a seat I feel a little bad that we don't have a handout but here's what we have for you okay we're going to have everything I cover is going to be up here so we can follow along and then it everything I say tonight is going to be posted on our website not only will we ha- download the the audio but we will also have the outline so you can get a hard copy you can print it out at home just go to our website Sarah's going to load it up there tomorrow. So you don't have to be anxiously taking notes and trying to remember everything because we're going we're gonna to have a lot of information tonight and uh, we'll just try to work through it. And at the end of the night, I will open it up for questions. And if it's before 8.30, we'll do them publicly. And if it's, at, if it's already at 8.30, we'll, I'll just take them privately. But... If you have a Bible with you tonight, turn to Luke chapter 1, or maybe we'll have even the Scripture up here. I don't know. Doesn't look like it. Okay, that's great. All right, Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word, It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, 
to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things that you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, he goes on to tell the story of John the Baptist, chapter 2, verse 1. Now in those days, with the days of King Herod, the days of John the Baptist, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Then chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, And Herod was tetrarch of Galilee. And his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Eturia and Trachonitis. And Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene. In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Verse 23. When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age. All right, this is what we have from Luke. So I want to talk about history. I want to talk about how they figure out what happened in history. They use a number of markers to find ancient history. First, They use well-known dates in history that can be cross-verified. During the Roman Empire, the Roman dates are very well established because it was the Roman Empire. So whenever a Jewish date is related to a Roman date, that's a good chance that it's going to be right because um, of the more established dates. They cross-reference dates with known dates. Secondly, if astronomical events are mentioned they can be used to find precise dates. In the case of like a lunar eclipse, um, they know exactly when lunar eclipses were. They know the last 5,000 years and they know the next 5,000 years. Astronomy is incredibly exact. So whenever astronomical things are mentioned, they use those as a marker. Archaeologists... um, oftentimes find things that mention dates that provide a reference point. And then, interestingly enough, um, one big way is they use coins. Coins about rulers. Rulers would put the years of their reigns on their coins. Not the actual year in history, but what year it was of their reign. And so whenever they minted coins, it would have a number on it, signifying if if it had a five on it, that meant the fifth year of my reign. 
is when I made those coins. During the period of the Roman Empire, Roman dates are the easiest to be sure of because they can be verified from many sources. Israel was just a drop in a vast empire, which means that there, are, there is little to check Jewish dates against. A guy named Flavius Josephus, he, he was born in 37 AD, died in 105 AD, wrote extensively about the Jews. And he wrote two historical books. One is called The Antiquities of the Jews. One is called Jewish Wars. And he is almost the sole guy that they look to for Jewish history at this time because he wrote so much and he was Jewish and he wrote about these things and nobody else did. He, tie, he often ties his dates to Roman events that are well documented. Unfortunately, historians give 6 BC to 4 AD, which is going to be the exact period in question, is one of the most difficult periods in history, in Jewish history, to give precise dates. For whatever reason, Josephus stopped relating things during that decade. He, he did it before and he did it after, but not during that decade. And so it's very hard to figure out exactly when things happen. All right, I want to just start with important dates to give a a big picture of what's happening in the Roman Empire. Okay, 63 BC is when Pompey first conquers Judea. 44 BC, Julius Caesar is murdered. During, during the reign of Julius Caesar, he changed the calendar from the lunar calendar, which is based on the moon, to the solar calendar based on the sun. And they changed all of the months, and there was a month named after him. It was called Julius. It eventually got shortened to July, but he changed the solar calendar. 44 BC, he is murdered, and his nephew, Octavian, begins his reign sharing power with Mark Antony. Now, they had a very... Antony and um, Octavian had a very contentious relationship, and we'll talk about that a little more later. In 40 BC, or 39, where these these two dates... Whenever I have two dates, it's going to be about which puzzle is right, because there's two puzzles that have been put together, and we will talk about that later. 40 B.C. or 39 B.C., Herod is appointed by Octavian and Antony to be the king of Judea, but they are in Rome when they make this appointment. And the problem is, is somebody else at that time is ruling in Judea. His name is Antigonus. And he is one of the descendants of the Maccabees, which which the, the, the Jews honored the Maccabees because they had won a big fight and they, they're called Hasmoneans. Anyway, um, so they take this guy named Herod and they appoint him even though he's not a Hasmonean. And he marries a woman named Miriam who is a Hasmonean to try to please the Jews. And he marches to, he gets together his army, he gets Roman help and he marches to Jerusalem And in 37 B.C., or 36, depending which puzzle is is the one we're going to go with, 
Herod defeats Antigonus and actually begins to reign in Judea. He starts printing coins that year, which we have copies of, that have the number three on them. Okay, there are no, there are no one and two, but he took those first two years because he was appointed king even before he actually was king. So he started printing these coins, and we have them. Um, king Herod coins with three on them. 31 B.C., very important uh, time in history. Octavian defeats Antony. It was actually Antony and Cleopatra at Actium. Very, very famous event, famous war. Octavian wins. He becomes the lone ruler of Rome. In 27 BC, Octavian is given the title from the Roman Senate of Augustus. So Augustus, Augustus Caesar, which we we see here, actually is not his name. It's actually a title that means supreme ruler, majestic ruler. And he's given this title in 27 BC, and the original month, okay, it was Julius, and then August was Sextus, but it got changed to Augustus because of Augustus, and later shortened to August. Um, I'm just throwing that in for free. Anyway, uh, 6 BC or 3 BC, depending which puzzle is right, Christ is born. In 2 B.C., Augustus receives, on his 25th anniversary, he receives the title Father of the Country from the entire Roman people. 4 B.C. or 1 B.C., depending which puzzle is right, Herod the Great, which is actually just King Herod, the only reason they called him Great was because he built stuff. He built amazing things. He built temples and homes and I mean he he was a huge builder but there was nothing great about his character he killed everybody in sight all the time anybody that came close and you'll see that as we talk more so he dies and he doesn't leave he doesn't give any of his sons the title king he gives Archelaus what's called an ethnarchy which just means half of the kingdom He gives Archelaus Judea, and he makes Antipas and Philip tetrarchs, which just means a fourth. So two get a fourth, and one gets half. And these three start taking over. And then in 6 AD, Archelaus is so horrible that the Jewish people appeal to Augustus and say, we would rather be under direct Roman rule than have Archelaus. So what he does, what, what Augustus does, is sends a guy named Quirinius. And in 6 AD, Quirinius comes, very famous census to the Jews, because it was a local census, it was just of the Jewish people, and it was just on their introduction into the Roman Empire, and it led to a rebellion in Israel. So this, this census was the beginning of a lot of bad stuff. It was a census for taxation. It was the first time they were directly taxed from Rome because up till this time, since 63 BC, when Pompey conquered them, you would, they never were under the direct 
rule of Rome. They were what was called a client kingdom. This is very important to understand. Rome was, the Roman Empire was so vast, it was easier for them on these peripheral kingdoms that they conquered to let them self-rule. They called them a client kingdom, and instead of directly governing them or taxing them, they just paid tribute. So in Judea, King Herod was that guy that was taking care of the kingdom, and they were not under taxation from Rome. They were, they had to pay tribute. Herod needed to pay tribute, but Rome itself did not do taxes until 6 AD. 14 AD, August 19th, Augustus dies. His son Tiberius takes over the throne. 26 AD, a guy named Pontius Pilate is installed as the fifth procurator of Judea. So Quirinius was the first procurator, and now he is the fifth one. He reigns for 10 years, 26 AD to 36 AD. And in 27, depending on which puzzle you use, or 29 AD, John the Baptist starts his ministry, and Jesus starts his possibly six months later. So let's talk about the puzzle of Christmas history. First, I want to I want to say this up front. Usually when I've done this in the past, I've tried to do both Luke and Matthew. Matthew never talks about the birth. Matthew gives before the birth the the, the dream that Joseph had and then it gives after the birth the visit of the the wise men, but it never tells the events of the birth. So we really only have one gospel that gives the events of the birth itself, and that is the gospel of Luke. All right, so um, the puzzle of Christ's birth before a guy named Emil Schur. Irenaeus, one of the early fathers born in 130 AD, said that the Lord was born in the 41st year of the reign of Augustus. Augustus started reigning in 44 BC when Julius Caesar died. You take 41 years and you get to 3 BC. Second church father. Clement of Alexandria, born in 150 AD, said Jesus was born in the 28th year of Egyptian rule of the Egyptian rule of Augustus. The Battle of Actium was won in 31 BC, which is when they took over Egypt, and the 28th year would once again be 3 BC. Third father guy named Tertullian. He was a lawyer. He was a huge apologist. Born in 160 AD, stated that Augustus began to rule 41 years before the birth of Jesus, and then died 15 years after, once again, a 3 BC birth. Luke just says this, in the 15th year of Tiberius, that Jesus was about 30 years old. So Tiberius starts ruling in August 19th of 14 AD. You go 15 years from there, you get to 29 AD, 28, 29 is is the year that they give for Augustus 15th year. Different Roman historians call it 28, some call it 29. 
you go back 30 years. You got to remember, there's no zero. So you go right from 1 AD to 1 BC. You, you can't go back to zero and then go backwards. You go right from 1 AD to 1 BC. You go back 30 years and you get to either 2 or 3 BC that Luke gives as the birth for Jesus. So everybody in the body of Christ believed 3 BC. You know, you say, well, how did we get to 3 BC? I thought that time was split by the birth of Jesus. It was supposed to be right in the middle. Well, a guy named Dionysius in 500 AD is the guy that originally gave the birth of Christ, and he was a few years off. And so we, we're on a calendar that's AD and BC, and it's, it's wrong. And it's been wrong. We've known it's wrong almost from the beginning. So anyway. All right, so here's what happened in 1886. We're now going to look at the puzzle that Emil Schurer and a consensus of historians put together that contradicted the 3-2 B.C. date. It all centers around King Herod's death. Matthew and Luke are clear that King Herod was, was alive when Jesus was born. And Emil Schur, who wrote this book called The History of the Jewish People in the Time of Christ, he gave 4 B.C. as the time of Herod's death. Now, obviously, if Herod died in 4 B.C., and Herod had all the babies that were two years or younger killed, uh, then Jesus could not have been, he obviously couldn't have been born in 3 B.C., if Herod died in 4, so you have to go back to 5 or maybe 6 B.C. Well, here's why he put that together. Here's why he, he gave King Herod's death as being 4 B.C. Here, here's his evidence. First, Josephus has all three sons dating the beginning of their reigns at, at 4 B.C. And this it is confirmed by uh, their coins. Actually, two, only two of them had coins. That they started their reigns in 4 B.C. Usually, the reign of new rulers is dated from the death of old ones. So that is very strong evidence. King Herod must have died in 4 B.C. Because the king, the, his sons all started their reigns in 4 B.C. Secondly, Josephus... Josephus' statement of the appointment in Rome um, that Herod was appointed by Octavian and Antony in Rome, and it says in Josephus, in the 184th Olympiad during the consulship of Calvinus and Polio. The Romans kept every four years. It was called, it was called an Olympiad. Every four years was an Olympiad. So the 184th ended in July of 40 B.C. Calvinus and Polio were appointed later that year. And so they used 40 B.C. as the beginning point of this appointment. And then we have this statement. This is the only definitive passage from Josephus about when he died. It says... When, this is from uh, Antiquities of the Jews. When he had done those things, he died. The fifth day after he had caused Antipater to be slain, 
having reigned since he procured Antigonus to be slain 34 years, but since he had been declared king by the Romans, 37. So he has reigned. He died after a 37-year reign after becoming appointed in Rome. So you take 40 B.C., go 37 years up, and you get to 3 B.C., 34 years from when he had Antigonus killed. So if you go to 37 B.C., and you go 34 years, you also come to 3 B.C., which, of course, is not 4 B.C., it's 3 B.C. And, uh, but, but they couldn't give, he, he couldn't give 3 B.C. as the date of his death, and the reason why is the, the third reason, is Josephus, in all of his writings, mentions a lunar eclipse once, and is in conjunction with King Herod's death. Josephus says that Herod died after a lunar eclipse and before Passover. And he lists several things that happen in between. Well, the problem with 3 BC, which is what the dates would come out to, is there is no lunar eclipse in 3 BC. The closest one to it is in 4 BC. It's at March 13th of 4 BC, about 30 days from Passover. And uh, what he said is, this is the best fit for all of the available evidence. 4 BC is his death. Therefore, Christ died, or Christ was born either 5 or 6 BC. And it became known as the surer Consensus. Now, here's the one troubling thing about his consensus for him. And that is that Luke's piece doesn't fit. Luke, who is the historian um, that today we would look at and say he's the closest to the actual events, um, he took a very different look at Luke, as did all of the theologians that were, or historians that were working with him. Here's what he said about Luke. Luke is wrong. Luke was probably not written by Luke. That that somebody much later used Luke's name, because Luke was a traveling companion of Paul, and wrote the Gospel of Luke, and it's, it's a theological book. It's all about theology. It's all about Jesus dying on the cross for us, and Jesus' message, and this is his heart. This is Luke's heart. He's not trying to tell history. He's giving theology. And so, Luke just kind of makes up this story about this census, and Joseph and Mary coming back, and that gets them to Bethlehem because he's, in, he's a descendant of David, and so that's David's city. And so Luke just kind of, he just kind of makes the whole thing up, and he gives four points under that. Number one, nothing is known in history of a general census by, by Augustus. The only censuses, there's... there's three major censuses by Augustus that are all for taxes, and they're just on the Roman Empire, and one of them is 28 B.C., one of them is 8 B.C., and one is 1480. It's every 20 years. There's an emperor, uh, a Roman 
It's just for the Romans, though. And it's a, it's a general taxation. Those are the big censuses. Number two, in a Roman census, Joseph would not have had to travel to Bethlehem. And Mary would not have had to travel at all. Number three, no Roman census would have been made in Judea during the reign of Herod the king. There would be no taxing of Judah during Herod, King Herod. They're a client kingdom. They're not in the Roman Empire yet. They're not under the direct rule. So he's saying this just wouldn't have happened. There wouldn't have been a taxation on Judea and, and, and not a, a taxation, a census for taxation. And then four, he says this, Josephus records no such census and it would have been a notable innovation. So he's like, uh, sorry. Sorry, Christians. Um, hate to hate to burst the bubble, but this, this didn't really, it just didn't happen that way. And uh, today's atheists, uh, namely Richard Dawkins, has picked up on this, and there are blogs about this, and this is all myth, and, and th- this is all made up, and this is all part of a fairy tale, and the, 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 the Christmas story for a number of reasons, he actually just lists all of Emil Schurer's reasons, is this is the type of faith Christians have. That's all it is. It's faith. Um, with the Freedom from Religion had a big billboard last year. It was called Reasons Greetings, um, i.e. <laughs> people to think greetings instead of seasons greetings for the Christians that bury their minds away, whatever. Da-da-da. All right. So, most troubling thing about the Emil Schurer consensus in 1886 is this is the one that's in all of the history books. This is the one that you will find in every, almost every commentary. They will use these dates. And they will say Christ is born 5 or 6 BC because of the Schurer consensus that established that King Herod died in 4 B.C. All right. Here we go. I'm now going to talk about a different puzzle that has come about and tell you why some historians are leaning towards the 1 B.C. date. Now, we're talking about Herod's death. Then we'll talk about Christ's birth. Here's, here's what started it. There's a number of things that need to happen between the eclipse, the lunar eclipse that Josephus mentions, the only time he mentions it, and then a number of events happen. Herod, Herod dies, a number of other things happen, and then there is a Passover. Well, a guy named Ernest Martin, and now he's been backed up by William Filmer, Jack Finnegan, Andrew Steinman, many different historians are going this way pointed out that if you use the 4 BC lunar eclipse, you've got March 13th, you have got exactly 30 days until Passover. Well, there's a problem. Here's the problem. Here are the number of things that have to happen in these 30 days. First, it says Herod is very sick 
after the lunar eclipse. And he was taken 10 miles to warm baths and returned back when treatment failed. Then he ordered important men from every village in the nation up to 80 miles. So he had to send word to them, and then they had to come to consult about his health. Then he ordered a trial for his son Antipater. Three years before, you know what, I'm not going to say that right now. Herod's son Antipater was the heir to the throne. He was going to take over. He had actually started a co-regency with Herod. I'll tell you about that later. And, uh, but he was conspiring himself to kill Herod. Herod found out about it. So he had a trial for his son and executed his son uh, five days later. Then uh, he died. Then a magnificent funeral was planned and held for Herod whose body was carried about 23 miles and then buried. Then a seven-day mourning period began, followed by a funeral feast. Then another public mourning was planned and held for the patriots who had been executed during the day preceding the night of the eclipse. That's why Josephus mentioned the eclipse, is because Herod had these two guys killed that had taken down this eagle he had put on the temple, which of course was like an idol, and Herod had them killed. So we've got two full mourning periods of seven days. Anyway, long and the short is this. He does the math. Ernest Martin does the math in 1966. He says, if you do these, each one of these, the absolute quickest you could possibly do it, it would be 40 days. Usually it would take 55 days to do all of these things. The eclipse of of 4 BC, March 13th, does not allow enough time for all these things to happen. It simply couldn't happen. You can't get these events in 30 days. Well, there's no eclipse in 3 BC. There's no eclipse in 2 BC. The next eclipse is January 10th, 1 BC. In this situation, you've got a full eclipse, not a partial eclipse, and you've got three months until Passover. And Ernest Martin and many of these others make the case that the 1 B.C. date should be used for Herod's death, not the 3 B.C. They propose a different beginning time for Herod's reign. So um, Schur used 40 B.C. from Rome, and then 30 B.C. took over for Antigonus. And they say, uh, no, it's 39 B.C., and 36 B.C. First, let's start with the date that they used to start. They said in the, 40, in the 184th Olympiad, this is what Josephus said, while Calvinus and Polio were consuls, Herod and Octa- or Antony and Octavian appointed Herod in Rome. Well, it, it's kind of funny because this is... Everybody knows this is not true. This cannot be true. And the reason why is the 148th, 184th Olympiad ends July of 40 BC. And Calvinists and Polio are not even appointed until after that. There's no way that it can be during the 184th Olympiad. I took this, I took, Andrew Steinem did a, a paper on this. He's a, a 
historian down in Indiana about Herod the, de- Herod the Great's death. And I took it to our guy down on campus who's a Roman Empire um, professor, doctor. That's all he does is the Roman Empire. And I had him read it. And I came in a second time to meet with him. And I said, you know, tell me what your thoughts are of all of this stuff. He said, well, I'll tell you one thing. He said, there's absolutely no way that that could happen during the 184th Olympiad because Octavian and Antony were still warring against each other until the Treaty of Brudisium that happened in October, which is in the 185th Olympiad. There's no way they could make that appointment until after they came together and made a treaty. So it can't be the 184th. So we know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that Josephus is wrong about the 184th Olympia. That is absolutely well proven. Any historical scholar will tell you that. So then what is the argument for 39? Well, Calvio and Calvinus and Polio reign in both 40 BC, from mid-40 BC to 39 BC. And two other Roman historians, one guy's name is Dio, and the other is Appian, both give evidence that points to 39 B.C. instead of 40 for the appointment of Herod by Rome. All right. Three years from 39 would be 36 B.C. that that he um, defeated Antigonus and the war was won. And the argument they make is Josephus' words are that he defeated Antigonus exactly 27 years after Pompey's victory, which was in 63, 63 B.C., which would come to 36 B.C. He also mentions that it's towards the end of a sabbatical year for the Jews, which marks 36 B.C. as the year Antigonus was slain, since um, sabbatical years are only every seven years. The last one was 43 B.C. 36 B.C. would have been um, another sabbatical year. Okay, so they've got a different starting point, 39 and 36 instead of 40, 37. And they use something called accessional dating instead of inclusive dating. What what does this mean? Simply this. Whenever Josephus is dating Jewish kings, he dates them by a system called accessional dating. And all it means is this, is if you're keeping track of king's reigns, When a king dies, you give the year of that reign to the one that died. You don't give it to the new guy. The new guy starts his reign at the beginning of the next year. That way, king's reigns aren't counted twice. You don't double years. So accessional dating says if somebody dies in 39 B.C., the other guy starts his reign not in 39, but in 38 the first of 38 B.C., and you start dating his reign, and the old guy gets credit for 39 B.C. The new guy starts his in 38 B.C. Now, the Romans didn't use accessional dating, and he doesn't do it with Roman kings or Roman emperors, but he does it with all of the Jewish kings. Andrew Steinem, in his paper, he goes all the way through the antiquities. He says he always uses accessional dating. So let's do the, the dating. If, you die, if he is appointed in 39 B.C., you would start his reign in 38 B.C. 37 years from that would come to 1 B.C. 
if he took Antigonus in 36, that first year would belong to the old guy, so you'd start his reign in 35. 34 years later, once again, would come to 1 BC for the death. With no fitting, no pushing, they're saying 1 BC fits both of that. Okay. So what do you do about these sons that all date their reigns from 4 B.C.? They propose that the sons dated their reigns from Herod's disgrace instead of his death. Three years before Herod died, he was... He lost his position as friend of Caesar and became a subject of Caesar. It was... It was a complication in Syria, and Caesar demoted him from friend to subject. It was about this time that he had the two rightful heirs, which were both Hasmoneans, children of him and Miriam, that all of Israel was looking to as being the next heirs. They were named Aristobulus and Alexander, and he had both of them killed, which... Antipater had given some reasons why they should be... Anyway, they had a trial. They killed, they killed those two rightful heirs. And uh, at this time, Augustus said, it is better to be Herod's pig than his son <laughs> because of how violent he is. Anyway, um, so at that time, of, of his disgrace... What Herod did is he gave Antipater a co-regency. Antipater was his son who was going to reign because Alexander and Aristobulus were killed. Antipater was the new guy. And he gave him a co-regency. In his disgrace, Antipater certainly, if he had dated his reign, it would have been from from three years before Herod's death because that's when he started co-ruling with him. And Josephus tells about the co-regency. So Antipater is co-ruling with him for the last three years. And then Herod has Antipater killed five days before he dies. And so when do the sons start their reign? Do they start it from Herod's death? Or do they take those three years of co-regency that Antipater had. It's called antedating your reign. We already talked about Herod himself antedated his reign and took the first three years when he was appointed, even though he wasn't actually ruling. So why would Rome allow Archelaus, Philip, and Antipas to antedate their reigns? Number one, the Romans respected the royal lines of their client kingdoms, which is why when Herod first approached Antony, it wasn't to make himself king, but Miriam's brother Aristobulus, who was a Hasmonean. Because of Antony's friendship with his dad, Antipater, and these names are going to confuse you crazily because they're all the same. But anyway, because of Antony's friendship with his dad, um, he appointed Herod king, even though he was not in the royal line. Aristobulus and Alexander were the children of Herod and Miriam and were the heirs to the throne. After Herod had these two sons killed, okay... I'm just saying the same things that I've already said. All right, Paul Finch writes this. At the death of Alexander and Aristobulus, Antipater became co-ruler with his father and in no way different from a king. This was in 4 BC. Yet Antipater schemed to kill his father. When Herod heard about it, he recalled Antipater from Rome 
to try him. He was convicted of high treason, and Herod sent a request to Caesar to have him executed. Herod at this time changed his will and completely expunged Antipater's name from memory. It is assumed by many that shortly after this, Herod died and was succeeded by Archelaus. But when Archelaus assumed power, he was reckoned by Josephus as one who had long exercised royal authority. Well, Archelaus had never exercised any authority at all unless he took those years. He antedated his reign. So many historians, this is Ernest Martin, suggest that Herod's reign was seen to have officially ended with his disgrace, not his death, which was in 4 BC, the disgrace, while his successors appropriated Antipater's regnal years and incorporated them into their own reigns. Okay, that's, that's really complicated. Um, so, long and short, Herod is disgraced in 4 BC. He doesn't die till 1 BC. When the three sons take over, they take those three years from the disgrace because that's when uh, his other son would have started his reign that he had killed. They take those years and they add them to their own reign, which there are multiple examples of Jewish kings adding years to their reign through antedating. The question is, is there any proof? Is there any actual proof that they antedated their reign. There is this one line from Josephus that said Archelaus, when he took over, considered himself to have been having royal authority for a period of time before that. That's one proof. But the other two are the coins that they found. Archelaus never put dates on his coins, so you can't use his. But they have found coins of Philip, and they have found uh, coins of Antipas, the earliest coin that they found for one of them is four. Antipas is four. And the earliest they found for Philip is five. So in the fourth year of, of Antipas's reign, he minted all these coins. And we found some that have four on it. Philip, in the fifth year of his reign, minted coins that have a five on them. Where, where are one, two, and three? If you antedated your reign, of course, they wouldn't exist. You will never find a King Herod coin that has one or two on it because he didn't mint coins then. He wasn't even king yet. He, he took those years, but he didn't start minting coins until his third year. That's why they have a three on it. He took two years. And the only coins we have are four and five. So this is one proof that they have... T- I don't think you're ever going to find a one, two, or three because I think they antedated their reigns back to 4 BC. So the main reason... This is number... I'm on point four. The main reason, though, for relooking at the puzzle is Luke. I'm just going to read this article or, or this little thing about Sir William... Ramsey in the early 1900s, he set out to disprove Luke in the book of Acts and was found that he was right about every city, every title, every ruler and date in such a way that made him a believer. When he first went to Asia Minor, many of the cities mentioned in Acts had known, no known location and almost nothing was known of their detailed history or politics. The Acts of the Apostles was the only record and Ramsey, skeptical, fully expected his own research to prove 
the author of Acts, hopelessly inaccurate, since no man could possibly know the details of Asia Minor more than a hundred years after the event. This is when Acts was then supposed to have been written. He therefore set out to put the writer of Acts on trial. He devoted his life to unearthing the ancient cities and documents of Asia Minor. After a lifetime of study, however, he concluded, quote, further study showed that the book could bear the most minute scrutiny as an authority for the facts of the Aegean world, and that it was written with such judgment, skill, art, and perception of truth as to be a model of historical statement. On page 89 of the same book, Ramsey accounts, I set out to look for truth on the borderland where Greece and Asia meet and found it there in Acts. You may press the words of Luke in a degree beyond any other historian's and they stand the keenest scrutiny and the hardest treatment. So in Amosher, when he's putting the puzzle together, he assumes that Luke or Acts was... Acts and Luke were not written really by Luke, that they had used that name and it was written a hundred years later and they're just writing back and they're, they, it's a theological thing. So William Ramsey is setting out to show that this is true in the book of Acts. And what he finds is incredible. He finds that the author of, Luke, of Acts had to have been Luke. It had to have been somebody that traveled during that time. Luke himself, in the book of Acts, ends with Paul in a Roman prison. Now that dates Acts and Luke. It dates it before um, 68 AD, which is when Paul was killed. Paul is still alive when Acts ends. The temple is still up. The idea that Luke would have written after the temple had fallen and after Paul died and not mention it in Acts is ridiculous. So it's internal evidence. This was written very close to the actual days that these things happened. Luke was a great historian. The idea that you can just take what Luke said and just say uh, it didn't happen because he, he was a theologian, not a historian... In the last hundred years, we found out that is absolutely not the situation. You can't throw the piece out that Luke gives. So Luke writes not a nice story, but he writes history. So what do we do with Emil Schurer's four allegations? First one. He said this. He wrote this in 1886. There's no historical record of Caesar Augustus's decree to register all the inhabitants. There's no, uh, no general census known of by Augustus Caesar. The purpose of a Roman census usually was to tax its subjects, which is why the translators of the King James felt confident in adding the census... Uh, the purpose of the census being taxation. However, taxation is never mentioned by Luke in the Greek. Only the word census or registration. The problem, okay, I've already talked about that. Was there ever an empire-wide census required by Caesar that would have included Israel? Here's what uh, Ernest Martin writes about this. First, Augustus hints at it 
when he receives the title Father of the Country in 2 BC. Here's, here's Augustus' own words. While I was administering my 13th consulship, which is 2 BC, the Senate and equestrian order and the entire Roman people gave me the title Father of my Country. This award was given to Augustus on February 5th, 2 BC, as the glorious Silver Jubilee of Augustus, uh, 25th anniversary of him getting that title, and it was also the 750th anniversary of the founding of Rome. The tribute of having everyone pledge their loyalty to him was part of the celebration. If the gift of this empire wide pledge was given at the beginning of 2 BC, the registration of the people's oaths must have taken place sometime before that. He calls it, it was given to him by the entire Roman people. Now, in Augustus's mind, the entire Roman people is not just Romans, it's everybody that they've conquered. It's everybody. It's, it's everybody that is under Roman control. Orosius, in the 5th century, said that the Roman records of his time revealed that a census was indeed held when Augustus was made the first of all men. Orosius dated the census to 3 BC. Here's his words. Augustus ordered that a census be taken of each province everywhere. This is the earliest and most famous public acknowledgement which marks Caesar as the first of all men and the Romans as lords of the world. That first and greatest census was taken since in this one name of Caesar, all the peoples of the great nations took oath and at the same time, through the participation in the census, were made part of one society. So Orosius tells us there was a census of the whole world, had nothing to do with taxation. It had to do with making this pledge to Caesar, that Caesar's the first of all men. He's the father of the, of the country. Okay, and then this inscription was found in Paphlagonia, a region in north-central Asia Minor, dated to 3 BC. And it mentions an oath, quote, an oath sworn by all the people in the land at the altars of Augustus in the temples of Augustus in the various districts. Okay? The early Armenian historian Moses of Quran stated that the native sources he had available showed that in the year of Abgar, king of Armenia, once again, 3 BC, a census brought Roman agents to Armenia, bringing the image of Augustus Caesar, which they set up in every temple. So we've got three different sources, historical, that give 3 BC that there was an empire-wide census. The question is this. Did Josephus ever mention it? Did, jo did Josephus ever say that Israel took an oath and were part of this census of making Augustus the first of all people? Well, interestingly enough, he does. This is 15 months before Caesar dies, or I'm sorry, Herod dies. This is straight out of antiquities. There was moreover a sect, a certain sect of Jews who valued themselves highly for their exact knowledge of the law and talking much of their contact with God were greatly in favor with the women of Herod's court. They are called Pharisees. They are men who had it in their power to control kings, extremely subtle and ready to attempt anything against those whom they did not like. When therefore the whole Jewish nation took an oath to be faithful to Caesar 
and to the interests of the king, these men, to the number of above 6,000, refused to swear. The king, having laid a fine upon them, Fioras' wife, Herod's sister-in-law, paid the money for them. So here we have an oath by the whole Jewish nation shortly 15 months before Herod's death where people pledged to be faithful to Caesar and to the interests of the king. We know that there, this was a, there was a registration. There had to have been because they knew exactly 6,000 hadn't taken it and that a fine was paid in place of it. <clears throat> Notice two differences between the Roman-run oath that would have been in the direct Roman Empire and the client kingdom run oath. Herod's decree required a pledge to Caesar, but not only to Caesar, also to the interests of the king. This census was not run by Rome. It was demanded by Rome. Augustus said, I want the entire inhabited earth to have this census but the client kingdoms got to run it on their own, their own way. So he made this oath that was a pledge to Caesar and to the interests of the king, which is himself. Clearly, Rome would never have made that the pledge. That's going, that's, that's going to be a client kingdom pledge. Secondly, notice there's no mention of statues of Augustus in the temple or synagogues or statues in Jewish synagogues, but only a pledge to be faithful to Caesar. Um, this is clearly, a, the, the pledge that was required is clearly run by King Herod and not by Rome. The one the Roman officials directly carried out was much more intense. Few Jews would have bowed down to a statue. And certainly... If it was directly run by Rome, the idea that 6,000 would decide not to do it and they'd pay a fine instead, I'm sorry, it's not happening. Rome just kills people if you don't make the pledge. That was definitely run by the client kingdom. And King Herod, crafty man as he was, found a way to even make money on it. All right. Allegation. In a Roman census, Joseph would not have had to travel to Bethlehem and Mary would not have had to travel at all. That's right, in a Roman census. This isn't a Roman census. This is client kingdom. And the way you would run a Jewish registration, you would always have everybody come back to their hometown. The reason why, that was the property they owned. You never lost ownership of your property, even if you moved somewhere else. The way that property did not change, it changed hands, but it all returned to you in the year of Jubilee. So in a Jewish census, you would have everybody return to their hometown. Joseph and Mary's family property was around Bethlehem. Joseph had probably gone to Nazareth because there was work there. But the land his family owned, even if it was currently rented by someone else, was around Bethlehem. Everyone registering in their own city would not be as chaotic as it sounds. Most people lived on their family property, so they would already be there. All right, allegation. No Roman census would have been made in Judea during the, ro the reign of Herod. No, there wouldn't be, not for taxes. But there was one for an oath to Caesar. The fact that Herod caused the whole Jewish nation to take an oath means that it was both men and women. And of course, his allegation that Josephus records no such census, um, yes, he does. 
He didn't call it a census. He called it an oath. So those are the, those are the four direct things that Amos sure said that, that did not happen, that Luke said happened, that didn't happen. And we know now, historically, all four of them did happen. But there is one last problem. There's one last allegation that is made by Emil Schurer. And it's this. Quirinius was not governor of Syria until long after the reign of King Herod. So let's read Luke 2 again. It says, this was the first census. Mary and Joseph coming back to Bethlehem. It says, this was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And so many of the critics say, Luke is very confused. He is calling this census that Quirinius took in 6 AD empire-wide. Well, it certainly wasn't empire-wide. That was a very local census. It was just for Judea. It was for them to come into the Roman Empire. And Luke is saying that Jesus was born when Quirinius came in 6 AD, not when King Herod was still alive, which was years before that. Luke is messed up and he is confused. And there's been no little accusation about this scripture in Luke 2.2 2 about the first census. So what do, we, what do we do with this? He places Jesus' birth six months after John the Baptist, who was definitely born when, while Herod the Great was still king. In addition to this, he says that John started preaching in the 15th year of Tiberius, which would have been 29 AD, and, this, and says that Jesus was about 30 at the time. If he meant to link Jesus with the local census under Quirinius, Jesus would only have been 23. So what was Luke doing? Why, why did Luke mention Quirinius? Why did he say this is the first census under Quirinius? All right. To figure this out, you have to look at the word first. He says this is the first census under Quirinius. The word first in Greek is the word prote. P-R-O-T-E. And it can mean first. It often means first. But it can also mean, in some contexts, before. Here's what I believe the solution is. I believe it was made clear by Greek scholar Nigel Turner. A number of Greek scholars now accept Turner's solution to the Quirinius problem. First, in Koine Greek, the language of the New Testament, first is most properly used when describing a list of at least three. When listing two, as in this case, prior or former is actually more accurate. The reason why translators chose first instead of prior was that words would have, have to be added for it to make sense in English. Luke is employing a compressed phrase here, so English words must be supplied. Turner translates it this way. This census was prior to the census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. In the words of Turner about his way of translating Luke 2.2, 2, 
The phrase is compressed, but it is no more ungrammatical than the phrase in John, 30, John 5, 36. I have testimony greater than John. Well, when they translate it, they, they add the words testimony greater than the testimony of John. Or 1 Corinthians 1, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. But we add words, we add the wisdom of men, because they need to be added. The words in parentheses are absent from the Greek, yes, mu- yes mu- mu- must be supplied. Koine is different than classical Greek and follows different rules. Prote, followed by the genitive, which is in this situation, is translated before three times in God, John's gospel and once in 1 Timothy. But the most important is in Acts, where Luke himself does it. So Luke does the exact same thing somewhere else. And for, if you're into words and, and grammar, it's very important how that same author uses it. If you're going to prove that it's used differently than it looks like it's used, they need to have done that somewhere else. Well, he does the exact same thing in Acts 1.1. I want to read to you um, the, the New American Standard, which is the most word-for-word word of Luke 1.1. Here's what it says. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. That's Luke. That's Acts 1.1. Here's the problem with that sentence. It doesn't make sense. It just says, the first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven. What, what are you saying, Luke? Here's the NIV which translates it former instead of first. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. He is saying, I wrote a book before this book. That was the book of Luke. Now this is the second book, and he's comparing the two, and he's using before. Well, what's happening in... Luke 2.2 is Luke is he's speaking to Jews that only know about one census. It's very it's a very famous census, which is the census of Quirinius. It led to rebellion. It was when taxation started. It was the census every Jew knew about. He puts this in the words of Gamaliel in Acts 5.37. Here's, here's Acts 5.37. 5, it says this. In the days of Gamaliel's making this point, in the days of the census, Judas the Galilean rebelled and, and he's giving advice, but he calls it the census. That's how Jews thought about the Quirinius census. This is when we got into the Roman Empire. So what Luke is doing is he's taking, he's telling about the census of, of Joseph and Mary, the one that brought them back to uh, Bethlehem, and he's saying this is the census before the census that everybody knows about, the Quirinius census. This one happened before that, much less known, and he is trying to bring clarity, and in, in, the, in the Greek, in the Koine Greek, it's very, it, you can translate it either way, and it's kind of confusing. Anyway, um, so none of the Major translations have translated it before instead of first. But very recently, in 2011, the NIV gives before as an alternate 
translation. The Good News Bible also gives it before as an alternate translation. So the Quirinius problem is solved um, if you just say before instead of this is the census before the Quirinius one. So, all right, we're, we're, we're near the end here. One other major criticism is that Luke and Matthew contradict each other. The events around the birth and after the birth contradict each other, and that is just absolutely not the case. Let me give you 3 B.C., reconciling Luke and Matthew. So here's, here's the way I believe it happened. In 3 B.C., the spring, John the Baptist is born. In the fall, Joseph and Mary leave Nazareth for the census to give this oath to Caesar that is in Bethlehem. While they are there, Jesus is born. After making offerings, after the 40 days they make offerings, they return to their home in Nazareth. Luke says all of that. In 2 B.C., Joseph and Mary move to Bethlehem and rent a house. We know this because Matthew says that they rented a house, and when the wise men came, they came to a house, and Jesus is no longer an infant. He's a toddler. They use the word for toddler. When the wise men come to the house that they have rented. Why did Mary and Joseph leave Nazareth to go move to Bethlehem? Probably because that's David's city. Probably because they were being persecuted in Nazareth because Mary was pregnant before she was married. Uh, Who knows why? But they did. They left. They rented a house in Bethlehem in 2 BC. And during that time, some amazing things were happening in the sky. Jupiter and Venus had an is as close to an exact conjunction that's ever happened in history. In right by Regulus, which is the, the king star of Leo, which is the, is the star of Judah. The Judah the king, uh, Judah the lion. This conjunction was so exact that um, astronomers show this all over the world. Planetariums show this all over the world. It is, it literally lights up the sky. June 17th, 2 BC, this conjunction happens and it illuminates the sky. And I did a whole thing on the Christmas star that that tells about what happened in, in September of 3 BC. Regulus, the king star, means king. Jupiter, which was called the king planet, had three conjunctions, one after another. And this, this is very, very rare. Inside of Leo, Regulus is the brightest star in Leo. And the king star and the king planet have these three conjunctions in 3 BC, then they have this amazing conjunction, Jupiter with Venus, and the Magi were following a star, a a star that was moving. Well, stars don't move, but planets move, and the word for planet means wandering star. That's what they call, they called them both stars. There were fixed stars, and there were wandering stars. Jupiter was one of the wandering stars, and it was known as the king. And I believe Jupiter was the star that the wise men 
we're following. Here's what we know for sure. On December 25th of 2 BC, as viewed from Jerusalem, Jupiter went into retrograde motion. It stopped over Bethlehem. And its placement, when it stopped over Bethlehem, was in the abdomen of Virgo, in the abdomen of the Virgin. They are, they, these people know the stars, their life is stars, and they, they're following Jupiter, the king star, and it happens to be that it was, Jesus was probably about one and a half years old. It stops in the abdomen of Virgo, viewed from Jerusalem, in, over the little town of Bethlehem. It's a, a, absolutely amazing what happened with the stars. In 1 BC, in March, King Herod dies. Joseph and Mary return to Bethlehem, and this is what Matthew's gospel says. They discover that Archelaus is ruling, so they go back to Nazareth. And Jesus, of course, is raised in Nazareth. Why is this even important? Why are all these facts and all this puzzle? Here's why it's important. Guys, this happened. This happened in our history. Jesus of Nazareth was born in our history. He split time. Now, I know that 27% of the evangelical church struggles with the virgin birth. <laughs> Guys, there doesn't need to be any... Here's how you... If you want to think about the virgin birth, here's how you start. Jesus, his whole ministry, said he was God. He died on a cross. And he rose from the dead on the third day. This is one of the most well-proven facts in history, that he rose from the dead, which makes all of his claims true, that he was God in human flesh. Well, once you believe in the resurrection, once you believe God in human flesh, it's not that hard to believe in a virgin birth. It just, it kind of makes sense. We'll close today with we're at 8.15 in Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 2 he talks about the shepherds that came and watched by night turns out that all of the fields around Jerusalem, Bethlehem is less than five miles from Jerusalem, all of the fields around Jerusalem were used to raise the sacrificial animals. They had to sacrifice sheep for all of Israel. And most of Israel traveled to Israel and bought their sheep in the temple. And of course, you see that happening in the ministry of Christ where they're buying their sacrifices. So all of the fields around Jerusalem, including Bethlehem's, are shepherded by rabbinic shepherds. And they are the sheep that are going to be sacrificed in the temple. They're not being raised for wool. They're being raised for sacrifice. So when God appears to shepherds that are watching over the lambs that are going to be sacrificed in the temple, he appears to them and he says, I've got good news of great joy tonight in Bethlehem. A Savior has been born for you. And then he bids them to be the witnesses that watch over, the ones watching over the, all of the lambs for sacrifice are invited to come and watch over the lamb 
of God that was going to be slain for the whole world. Because the reason why Jesus came to earth was not to be a good example, even though he was the best example. It wasn't to give good teaching, even though he gave the greatest teaching. The reason why Jesus came to earth was to die. He was born. He lived a perfect life so that he could be the the Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. After a ministry, he, when he was about 30, he started his ministry. After a three and a half year ministry, he died. And on the third day, he rose from the dead. This happened in our history. The church was born. Paul says, if the resurrection didn't happen, there is no Christianity. If this didn't happen in history, If this isn't based on historical fact, there is no Christianity. Christianity is not about about some neat beliefs or a new way to look at the world or be nice to people. That's not what Christianity is. Christianity declares itself to be the truth of how you get right with God. That God sent His Son. Guys, it's, it's so hard to fathom this. The Creator took on flesh. The Bible says that he had no form that we should be drawn to him. That's why he was born as a baby. Why did God come in such humility? He wanted us to be drawn not by his power, but by his love. He was aiming for something more than our obedience out of fear. He was aiming for our love. And he said, if I be lifted up on that cross, I will draw all people to myself. Jesus was born on this planet. He split time. The way we tell time today is in regards to when he was on this earth, or close to it anyway. Jesus is alive today. There's a lot of people out there with a lot of ideas and a lot of people angry and a lot of people saying this is myth. Guys, this is the truth. I am so sorry that the history of this thing got so garbled. But it's just one more thing that we deal with. But please know that what you believe is based on facts. You can trust Luke. You can trust Acts. All right, we've got a few minutes Does anybody have a a question they'd like to ask? I'm sorry this stuff was so complicated, but whatever. Hi. Good. Oh, right. that's, that's That's a great question. She's saying... Uh, B.C. is before Christ. A.D. means the, the year of our Lord. So it, it, AD, sometimes people think A.D. means after death. No, that would mean that we'd have 33 years that wouldn't exist. Um, A.D. Is the, of, of, is the year of his birth. A guy, the first guy that made our current dating system and dated it on the birth of Christ, he did it in 500 A.D. and he started at the wrong place. <laughs> and so that's why it's, it's a little off. But it's close. Okay, great question. I saw another hand somewhere. Yes. Yeah, yeah.
Yeah, yeah. Well, Ernest Martin wrote a book called The Birth of Christ Recalculated that you, you can Google that, Ernest Martin, and, and all of his stuff will be in these notes.